Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. Hey there, listeners. We are very happy to welcome you to this first special episode with the occasion of the ongoing World Antimicrobial Awareness Week, starting today. This is a global awareness campaign organized by the WHO with the overarching slogan, Antimicrobials, Handle with Care, running every year between the 18th and 24th of November. But this year, the particular theme of the campaign is Spread Awareness, Stop Resistance, with the aim to recognize that everyone, from policymakers to the general public, can be an antimicrobial awareness champion. Here at the AMR studio, we wanted to contribute to this important occasion, as it is now tradition in our fourth year running, and we thought to tackle the concept of awareness from a different angle. We believe that the awareness of the work of others within the AMR community is also important, and that sharing the understanding, viewpoints, and perspectives of AMR professionals can have a great impact on the work moving forward for all of us that work in this very broad field. So, who is, for us, this AMR community we keep talking about? The AMR community is all of you. All of you who listen to us, who work one way or another with topics related to antimicrobial resistance, and who realize, we hope, that we are all in this together, trying to create a world where resistance is kept to a minimum and we're able to treat infectious diseases properly. The Uppsala Antibiotic Center, that is, the center that is hosting this podcast, is a multidisciplinary center funding research in different topics related to resistance and antibiotics, as you might have learned through the years here with us. So we thought to take the opportunity of this year's campaign to interview some of our scientists at the center and learn about their work, insights, and experiences so you can get a closer look at how some of the multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, and collaborative work on AMR looks like in the real world today. This special series will have two parts, with our first episode today focusing on work around the research and development of antibiotics, and a second episode early next week with a focus on research and the use of antibiotics. We hope that this series enlightens and inspires you by bringing awareness to some examples of creative work currently in action at the center, as well as some difficulties in areas where we can improve. Let's get started. For this first episode of the series, we got to talk to some of the researchers at the center that are currently working on different parts of the science needed to bring new treatments to the market. Today, you will hear from five UAC researchers who bring you their projects, how their work fits on the bigger picture of AMR, and what aspects of their fields we should all be more aware of. Dr. Dermot Hughes, a bacterial geneticist, has over the past six years worked actively within the European platform Enable to bring forward candidate drugs to treat gram-negative infections. And now he's working with the Enable spin-off to be developed in Sweden, called Enable 2. He tells us about what this project entails and what some of their challenges are. Enable project is a project trying to find starting points for developing new antibiotics, developing them to a degree where they can be continued by other international initiatives, and hopefully some of them will eventually make it all the way to the market. But this is a very high-risk enterprise. Most projects will fail. They will fail for reasons of toxicity, for example, or they don't have good enough efficacy, or they run into resistance problems. There's a whole load of uh, problems that will arise along the way. But this is one of these things where 
If we're serious about the problem of antibiotic resistance, we have to at some stage actually find new antibiotics, or if not new antibiotics, alternative therapies. But antibiotics are something we understand and in principle know how to develop. We know the risks are very high, uh, but this isn't really failure in any real sense. We have to try many, many projects to try to find the one or the few that actually can go all the way. Apart from the inherent scientific challenges that this work faces, Dr. Hughes also lifts up another critical point in this area. This isn't basic research, so it's difficult to get uh, normal science funding. Uh, you have to get funding that effectively comes from governments or from large charities, or you have to get assistance from the big pharmaceutical companies. So. One way or another, uh, we have to find money to do this. It's expensive. Uh, just the normal uh, salaries for all of these chemists, microbiologists, and so on. But as you get further on, the expense of animal experiments, and if something is really successful, then the money becomes very large because you ultimately have to do clinical trials, and this is incredibly expensive. Such a multidisciplinary and collaborative effort is possible thanks to the efforts of many different professionals. And Dermot tells us what different areas are needed in the process. The process of trying to discover and develop new antibiotics involves, at the beginning, very basic science. It's trying to find some compound that could potentially be a starting point. So this might be working with people who are experts in natural products, but very often it's working with chemists chemists who can uh, identify some molecule that has some potential and then have the ability to make many, many different variants of this. Then, of course, you're working with uh, a range of microbiologists and other people, cell biologists and so on, to uh, investigate the properties of this as the chemists make it. And all of that, it's pretty much like basic science, but with a, a goal at the end of finding an antibiotic that could be used in medicine. As you go on, of course, you have to interact with people with expertise in clinical trials and people with knowledge of business and economics, because ultimately this has to become a product and it has to involve a, a business model and it has to get through all of the regulatory hurdles. So you need experts in the regulation of drug development. So it's very much a, an evolving process, beginning with I would say very basic science, microbiology, chemistry, etc., and ending up very much as a business issue uh, for the benefit of medicine and human health. When asked about what he would want to make the AMR community aware of regarding the discovery and development of antibiotics, he has a clear answer. I think one of the things that people are a little bit unaware of is the difficulty of getting started. How do you actually find a starting point? I mean, if, if it was easy, we would not have this problem. We would have many new antibiotics coming online. But actually, there's a fundamental difficulty in finding a compound that has antimicrobial activity and has the potential to actually be developed as a drug. It's easy to kill bacteria. You can find many compounds that kill bacteria, but to find a compound that can kill bacteria without damaging the human <laughs> is a real difficult problem to solve. 
Now, you almost never find it initially. You find some compound that damages bacteria, and then you have to do a lot of chemistry work, a lot of biochemistry, a lot of microbiology, a lot of toxicology analysis to try to find your way through a maze. And it really is like finding your way through a maze. So difficult to find that initial starting point, something that you think might have the possibility if it's modified correctly. You will inevitably have many, many failures. And I think you have to be prepared for this. You have to be prepared that maybe you have to have 99 starts to find one success or maybe you have to have 999 starts to get one success it's not being prepared for failure we have to be prepared that many starting points will turn out not to be viable in the long run but we have to keep trying and of course we have to try to learn from all of the failures along the way to recognize things that will fail at an earlier stage behind platforms like enable 2 which are important for bringing new antibiotics to the market, there is a massive groundwork of basic research that looks into the why and the hows of how bacteria work. Our understanding of these things is fundamental to continue to develop antibiotics smartly, safely, and efficiently. Dr. Eric Holmquist, an RNA biologist, is currently studying a bacterial phenomenon that might not be so familiar to some of you, called persistence. He tells us what persistors are, why they are important, and how persistence might be related to resistance. The big difference from resistant bacteria is that persistors are not genetically different from their siblings, but they nevertheless can survive in the presence of, of antibiotics. And how does that work? Yeah, what happens is that a small part of a bacterial population becomes dormant. That means they are not growing and they have a, a very low metabolic activity. What happens then is then when they are treated with antibiotics is that antibiotics that target active processes in, this, in, in the bacterial cell do not work. So these bacteria basically survive because they don't grow. So why is this important? First I should say that persistence and persistence is still quite a debated topic because there are not a big amount of data that shows that this phenomenon is clinically relevant. But there is some evidence towards that. For instance, one has seen in, in patients with cystic fibrosis that have pseudomonas infections that persisters, the persister phenotype gets more and more frequent if you sample over time. It's also been shown that persistence actually can contribute to resistance. So persistent bacteria are more prone to get mutations that then lead to resistance. It's also been shown that persistent bacteria can participate in horizontal gene transfer to transfer antibiotic resistant plasmids, for instance. Eric is in particular working with a specific subfield of the persistence research, looking into how the toxin-antitoxin systems within bacteria might have a role in this. Eric tells us what the link is between these systems and the phenomenon of persistence. The link is that since the toxins make the cells to slow down growth or to stop growth, they basically make the cells persisters. So basically, you have a toxin, it toxifies the cell, the cell stops growing, this leads to dormancy, and therefore it leads to tolerance to antibiotics. The actual project that we just started now, the goal of that is to, to understand the contribution of these toxin-antitoxin systems to the persister phenotype 
and to do that in the context of a bacterial infection. And for this, we have chosen to study Salmonella bacterium, and we're going to do then in vitro infections. So it's not animal experiments or so, but it's in vitro infections. And on top of that, we also want to understand what are the signals, the environmental signals that trigger these toxins to be expressed, and how can the antitoxins regulate it? So what are the molecular mechanisms of the regulation, both of the expression and the inhibition of toxicity. Even though this research is basic in nature, the results arising from this work can help other researchers, as Eric tells us. The closest connections are, of course, other researchers studying persistence or studying the cause of persistence, but also, of course, researchers studying antibiotic resistance and the rise of antibiotic resistance because there is this correlation between persistence and increased resistance. So that would be the closest, I guess. Also, in the long run, be connected to more to clinical, to kind of clinical setting because, you know, we have seen from clinical samples that persistence can increase over time, especially in patients that have relapsing infections. But as I said before, this is still quite debated and there is not tons of evidence for the clinical relevance, I would say. Eric also tells us that people working on resistance should be aware of the persistence phenomenon and a very interesting point regarding the potential future use of toxin-actitoxin research. If you're studying bacterial resistance, it can be good to also know about persistence. You should be aware that persistence can actually be a contributing factor. I think also one very interesting aspect of this is how do you then eradicate persisters? And this is something that more and more researchers are looking into. I also want to mention something with toxin and antitoxin systems that is a little bit maybe speculative and it's kind of a something for the future and maybe a long shot. But it is the whole point of the toxins is that they actually slow down the growth of the cell or if they are at, at high concentrations, actually kill the cell, which means that all pathogenic bacteria actually encode functions that can kill themselves, which means that, you know, if we could find a way to induce these toxins, that could actually be a form of novel antibiotic strategy. It's also incredibly important to continue to improve the way we develop new antibiotics. With that in mind, Dr. Michael Saline, an infection biologist, has been developing methods to study infections in a more true-to-life setting, called organoids. Here he tells us a little bit more about his cutting-edge field. Our research in a nutshell deals with the following, that if you're a researcher or a clinical laboratory, you want to understand how antibiotics affect or do not affect the bacterium of a given isolate. Typically, you would just take that bacterium on a plate or in a liquid medium, you add antibiotic and you see what effect it has. And then you have your answer. But that only tells part of the story. And very often when you go from that type of information and you want to treat the patient, the treatment fails. And there can be many different reasons for that. But one key reason is that we're not really understanding what the infection looks like within a patient, within infected tissues. If you would uh, acquire a bacterial infection, those bacteria would be spreading in your body they would be located within extracellular fluids, on surfaces, even within specific compartments in your cells. And that will matter a lot for whether they are accessible to the antibiotics and it will matter for their behavior. Our lab tries to tackle this 
we're using developments in stem cell biology to build human tissues and we can use those to study bacterial infection as it progresses in a real tissue context. And we can then move to treatments and see how does a given antibiotic treatment affect bacteria when it's lodged in a given host tissue environment. And we think that this will add an important piece of the puzzle to understanding both bacterial infections and their treatments. This type of work can add a level of understanding earlier in the development process, as Mikhail describes himself. Right now, I should first say I am not an expert on antibiotic development, so there might be gaps in my knowledge. But right now you first test a new substance molecularly and you characterize it. And then you look for toxicity, and that you can do in simple cell line models that you culture human cells, let's say. Uh, and then you frequently have a step where you go into some experimental animal, if possible. For some infections, those do not exist, that you have a good infection model, and then you move to clinical trials. But that means that this process, from that you have a very simplistic model, till you have the super complex patient, it's gappy. And this is where we would like to fill in with a more advanced model that ethically is perfect, because we don't use experimental animals, but that at the same time faithfully recapitulates what infected tissue looks like in a patient. Mikael also wants to emphasize the multifactorial nature of infections. What I would like to highlight is that to understand an infection and to treat it successfully, you need knowledge of three components. You need to understand the microbe that infects you, you need to understand the treatment, in this case an antibiotic, and you need to understand the host yourself. How are these two components interacting within you to either eradicate or not eradicate the infection. Research using organoid models is a pretty novel thing, as we haven't been able to culture human tissues in this way before. Mikhail sees a bright and interesting future for organoid applications. I also foresee in the long term, this is not just for the infection biology aspects, that this also opens up opportunities for precision medicine, where you can mimic all sorts of variants of infections and see how they respond just as there is now discussions of mimicking a certain genetic disease in humans by culturing the human tissue side by side with the patient. But that's of course in the long term. Another researcher at the UAC, pharmacist Dr. Christel Bergstrom, is looking at a different part of the drug development pipeline, namely drug delivery and the formulation of new medicines. We let her explain more about the project herself. The project that we contribute to with in the UAC is around a more efficient delivery of polysoluble, polypermeable antibiotics. So typically the antibiotic company is not well absorbed from the intestine. So what we do with our formulations is that we can encapsulate a high concentration of the drug in a lipid-based formulation. And this lipid is also well absorbed over the intestine. So by that we can increase the concentration in the bloodstream. Crystal has been working on improving drug delivery before, with different strategies. So we have actually been involved in this field for quite some time, uh, from different kind of perspectives. So this particular project, we are highly focusing on more efficient drug delivery strategies, but we have been included, for instance, in a joint collaboration within the EU JPIAMR initiative, where we have looked into the use of computational modeling instead to understand how to efficiently deliver antibiotics to the lungs to treat Pseudomonas aeruginosa infections. So we are working within this field from different kind of angles, uh, making sure that the drug compound itself is delivered as efficiently as possible to the site of action. As you can imagine, 
This sort of work requires a lot of work with other researchers. Crystal tells us how this collaboration looked like. So what we have done previously is to work very closely with medicinal chemists. So they provide us with their compounds and we formulate them and then we do predictions of which one of these compounds would be the best also from a delivery perspective. So it's not only about the potency, it's also about that this compound needs to actually be able to reach to where the infection sits. So there we have worked very closely to medicinal chemists and been involved in that program. So sort of redesigning compounds so that they have better other properties than just the pharmacological property, which I think is very important. In this particular project that we are starting now, we also work with the medicinal chemists. But in this case, we're working with them to produce more efficient lipids so that we really can tailor those capsules that we are developing, the nanocapsules, so that they will reach in an intact form to the intestine. So we work very closely to medicinal chemists and then also closely to physicists, more around very careful characterization of these systems so that we actually have control of what it is that we have developed. We are working closely to the uh, clinics as well, but typically we, there the infections may be secondary infections coming out from other uh, treatments. Crystal believes that considering drug formulations from the start can improve the antibiotic development process and make better drugs available to the patients in the end. Quite often the formulation is sort of set aside and you don't think about all the benefits with combining your molecule that you're looking into with a proper formulation from the beginning. Because by doing so, you can reduce the dose, which could mean that, for instance, you wouldn't need to produce as much antibiotic compound as you need today. Uh, that means that that can have very strong environmental effects in the production line. By also making use of the formulation strategy in a smart way so that you get the compound delivered to where it should go and increase the absorption, that means that you would not have as strong effects on your natural microbiome and you would not have as much antibiotics reaching out to the wastewater system. And also the wastewater antibiotic is a, a trigger for the antimicrobial resistance. So. I think that the formulation can actually tackle several of these different issues that we have, both that the treatment is not efficient enough, but also working towards environmental friendly solutions within this field. Although developing new antibiotics is very important if you want to have treatment options available in the future, like Dermot Hughes pointed out earlier, this is very hard both scientifically and economically. Dr. Matei Erdi, an organic chemist, is working with a different approach that might buy us some time while these new drugs are working through the pipeline and into the market. He tells us how his work is aiming at disarming bacteria from their resistance mechanisms against beta-lactams. Our approach is neither to develop antibiotics, which is very difficult, or to hinder or regulate the use of the existing antibiotics, but simply to disarm bacteria. So we are attacking the weapons that bacteria use against our weapons, which means that we try to interfere with the chemical mechanism or chemical reactions that bacteria use to deactivate the antibiotics we have. And that means in our case that we try to develop inhibitors to so-called metallo-beta-lactamases, and in case we succeed, uh, this means that we reactivated the largest, cheapest, and historically most important group of antibiotics like 
penicillins, cephalosporins, and they will be applicable for, well, we don't know how long, but at least for a longer time again in, uh, when used in combination therapy with our compounds. He also tells us how they are working towards this goal. We actually start with existing antibiotics that are attacked by these enzymes because know that these structures will bind into the enzymes. And then we make chemical modifications, which makes that the compounds can bind to the enzyme, but the enzyme cannot react with it. So it will be simply sticking in into the active site and uh, will sit there and thereby it will inhibit the enzyme to get to the real antibiotic. So the approach is basically taking compounds that um, we know the enzyme binds and that have good drug properties, so permeability, physical chemical properties in general, modify their structure, and then we use solution NMR in order to look at the structure of the enzyme inhibitor complex And if we know the structure, then we can use rational modifications in order to increase the affinity so that they bind stronger. And we also wish to develop compounds that can bind to several types of beta-lactamases. Matei's work is also collaborative and connects with a lot of other areas that are actively involved in drug development. We really connect to the previous work on antibiotic development. And then, of course, we need to have compounds that are membrane permeable, and there are groups looking simply at membrane permeability of drugs in order to get into bacteria. There are groups looking into physical chemical properties of drug uh, candidates in order to have a better uptake. We connect to people who do biological assays, as we need to have certain selectivity, so we don't want to inhibit any human enzymes, just bacterial enzymes. And of course, in the long run, we will need to achieve a rational use of these compounds, because if this will be overused, then of course there will be a resistance development against this as well. So there have to be policies for the rational good use of these compounds in the long run. Finally, he also wants to lift up the important issue of the pressing nature of AMR and how we should maximize our efforts to diversify the AMR research so we have enough time to get ahead of the problem. One needs to be aware that just by regulating the use of existing antibiotics, we will not gain a lot of time. So without new molecules, we can maybe delay the antibiotic resistance development a little bit, but we, we really need new molecules. On the other hand, developing new molecules is extremely costly, and if you want to make them different from the existing ones so that no uh, resistance mechanism exists, it will take a lot of time and a lot of cost. So therefore, I think it's very important for the community to know that uh, in order to really gain maybe a decade or two, we need to find something in between these two extremes. And both extremes are important. We should limit the use of the existing antibiotics and we should make new antibiotics. But we need something that gives us time. And I think this metallobetalactamase inhibition can be one of these uh, routes how we can gain this one or two decades. 
So Ava, we've heard several interviews from a lot of interesting researchers at the center today. Uh, is there anything in particular that sticks out for you? Well, um, I think something that I really enjoy doing these interviews and putting together this episode is how we have available so much knowledge about the different parts. In this case, we are talking about from very early basic research all the way to trying to bring things into the market, how there are different perspectives and people really putting an effort into advancing in these kind of different smaller corners of the possible solutions. And I really like that we have people with different approaches like uh, Darmek Hughes looking into, you know, having the option to have a platform for these things to move forward to Mate that he was explaining to us that maybe just reliability of having new antibiotics is not enough and we have to mm. buy time in some other way. So it was very enlightening to listen to these people. I have to say, I found it really nice that these interviews kind of came together a bit organically. Mm -hmm. wasn't designed that we were going to have a, an episode with the structure. So it was really interesting to see how the project at the center just naturally fit together in a way. Mm -hmm. And it's really enjoyable to see these projects at different steps in this, if you visualize like a linear drug discovery pipeline, these different projects are just kind of fitting in at a different point or, you know, complementing the pipeline in a specific way. And it's just great to see progress being made or, you know, efforts being made to improve these things and work to move forward. I was also struck by, you know, the reminder of funding as an issue coming from different perspectives. Matei talking about that funding being such an issue. This is a sort of a way to buy time to improve antibiotics that already exist to make them viable again, as well as Dermot speaking about the enable pipeline, but also the issues with, you know, drug discovery and why these kinds of programs have to exist. It was also interesting to, of course, have these very cutting edge and new ideas of Mikael Celine, for example, working with organoids, which is something quite new. And yeah. also having Crystal looking into how can we even make the formulations better so we can have even more efficient uh, antibiotics so we don't waste any, any of the things that we have, right? Yeah, it was a great mentality to mm -hmm. it, I think, for specifically for also Christelle's work, that not only is it better for the patients, it's better for the environment, you have to produce less. I mean, it's just one of those things that's like, if this is done well, so many things improve. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with Mikaseline's work that, you know, it can only be beneficial pretty much if it's done well and things are considered early on and you can catch issues or find new ways of doing things mm -hmm. in early stages. It's very beneficial. I think it's also important to point out that uh, I feel uh, they did a great effort on trying to reflect on how their projects, you know, relate to the wider picture of AMR and how the research uh, that they're doing connects to other parts of the AMR field and the AMR community that we talk about. So I think there's a point to anybody out there working on AMR maybe to make a moment to reflect on how the work that each of us do relate to the work that many other people are doing out there. So for that, that was also like a great opportunity. And we have more interviews to reflect on and people that have done a lot of good work thinking about their, their research. Later this week, we're going to have a second episode, as we mentioned earlier in this episode, focusing more on research into the use of antibiotics and featuring four more researchers from the center. Hope to have you all back on Monday, the 22nd of November, in the second episode of this special series. Thank you. 
For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm. <laughs>